Hello, hello. Welcome to the Java STEM podcast. Melody Jayawira is a researcher in machine learning and wireless communications. He is a distinguished national scholar and double ISEF finalist. At ISEF 2019, with his project, he won second award in robotics and intelligent machines. He also won National Security Agency Research Directorate second place award, while Cyber Pioneer and third award from the Association from Computing. Machinery. In this episode, we are going to explore what game of jamming is all about and mission critical communications. Milodu also started tutoring low-income students at the beginning of this year at ABQ Explora. A lot of exciting topics to cover. I'm gonna say no more and give the mic to Milodu. Hi, Milodu. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you on this episode. You are researching such intriguing fields, so I'm curious to ask you: What initially sparked your interest in pursuing research in ML and wireless communications? So my middle school was actually closely affiliated with the state university, and we actually had a large number of science programs in which we visited the university and we were exposed to a wide variety of different fields. By getting to talk to a number of graduate students, so although they were in seemingly unrelated fields, I noticed that machine learning was a common trend in almost all of their research. So after researching a bit on my own, I started to get a glimpse of the large range of applications machine learning could be applied to, and I started to realize artificial intelligence could be a very important tool leading to solutions to some of the world's most challenging problems in which scientists globally are trying to solve. I got into wireless communications by actually stumbling on it in an article. So I found that much of communications technology today was used by, you know, satellites and the military, are actually very limited, even though they're, even though,、uh, you know, much of society is so reliant on them nowadays. So modern military operations, cell phone networks, self-driving cars, mobile banking—they're all accomplished using wireless communications. And yet, they aren't nearly at the level of sophistication they should be. It's still very possible and relatively simple for adversaries to actually jam signals that we're so reliant on, and this could result in potentially large-scale consequences, especially in a warlike setting. So this really sparked my interest because I wanted to try and you know improve that level of communi- uh, sophistication in something society is so reliant on nowadays. Excellent. As you've expanded on machine learning, it is so valid that ML is the secret ingredient we've been missing out on for a while. And if you implement it or add it to a research project, it can seriously elevate its level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perhaps not that many are familiar with the technical background of wireless communications. When you say that you want to sophisticate the system or the methodology, do you refer to a computational problem or something else? So I'm actually talking in the context of jammers. So when I talk about you know these modern military operations as well as you know the cell phone networks that we're reliant on, I'm talking about how easy it is to actually. You know, disrupt this type of communication.、Uh, I found that these types of communications are relatively simple to actually disrupt and like you know wreak havoc upon. 
So that's why I want to improve the level of sophistication of these types of communications that we use that are so important nowadays. Perfect, I see. And that's how it's related to your ISAF work, tackling a problem, which is in conjunction with jamming. So talking about jamming, let's jump right into it. And can you give an expansion on what your game of jamming is? Jamming is the term that we use for the deliberate disruption of radio signals through the use of high power signal in the same frequency range. So in modern electronic warfare, we usually have some actor that's attempting to communicate between two or more locations, and we have some adversarial actor uh, attempting to jam this type of communication by finding the specific frequency being used and disrupting it. So when the signal is jammed, the radio's operator usually switches frequencies as a solution and attempts to transmit again until the jammer rediscovers the signal. So in the past, most of the scenario that I just described is accomplished manually. And you can see that this interaction is actually very cat and mouse-like. The radio moves and the jammer follows. So for the first time, I modeled this interaction between the radio and the jammer as a stochastic game using game theory and redefined a reward function, which essentially quantifies the performance of each of the player's actions. So the way we usually solve these types of games are by finding a Nash equilibria in which no player has the incentive to change its action unilaterally as long as the other player keeps its action fixed. However, analytically solving this type of game can be unnecessarily complicated, and that's why I used machine learning algorithms instead. So I then actually physically developed a communications system as well as you know, a physical jammer by hard coding my solution into LabVIEW and then I used this program to control USRPs, which are a kind of software-defined radio. And that was to actually test my solution in real time using real communications so that, I could so that I could prove my solution was practical. Very interesting. So can we say that the military would be able to use your new methodology, your improved cognitive radio, instead of traditional CRs? For sure. So... Cognitive radios, we essentially use them to learn in real time how to communicate efficiently. So that's by using some sort of machine learning algorithms. Now, researchers have conceptualized but actually never really constructed a cognitive radio as an effective solution to signal jamming. However, uh, there has actually never been a real cognitive radio built that has been proven to be effective in autonomously avoiding various kinds of advanced jammers. So I actually developed physically a cognitive radio, which proved effective in avoiding both the traditional pattern following jammers, as well as a new cognitive jammer, both in simulation and in practice. And yeah, I think this would be you know, very useful for people like the military, um, at least here in the United States, that wants to optimize their communications systems and essentially make them more reliable and uh, efficient in avoiding these types of jamming. Absolutely. And essentially, you are rewriting the rules of what's been accepted or normalized in terms of radio communication, because you use the elements of game theory and reward function to make that 180 degree turn compared to traditional use. Yeah. So yeah, it was a new approach that I kind of went off of. 
We've expanded on cognitive radio, but what was the purpose of developing a cognitive jammer? Right. So cognitive radios were proposed in order to uh, combat pattern-following jammers. So these cognitive radios use the advantage of machine learning techniques to essentially learn the patterns of these jammers and learn how to avoid them. So I wanted to create a new kind of jammer, the cognitive jammer, which also uses machine learning techniques to try and predict the radio's behavior the same way the radio is predicting the jammer's behavior. And I believe that as more and more technology starts to turn to artificial intelligence, there will actually be many cognitive jammers developed and built to make it much more difficult to communicate. Now, I wanted to show that even when jammers use machine learning algorithms, it is still possible for a cognitive radio to learn how to communicate effectively. Essentially, I tried to give the jammer the same advantage that the cognitive radio was known to have, but I also showed that the cognitive radio, it's still possible for the cognitive radio to beat this kind of jammer as well. It's exciting to hear about this novel approach and the military application part is highly intriguing. You've completed this work, received several recognitions at Intel ISAF, but how do you envision the future steps and actionable intel of your project? So it could be long-term or short-term, it could be long or short-term. You know, in the long-term, I plan to continue this project by broadening the cognitive radio's ability against other jammers. So I only tested this on a few, you know, pattern following jammers, as well as, you know, my own developed cognitive jammer. However, there are a bunch of different other kinds of jammers that are, um, you know, available on the market nowadays, such as, you know, multiple simultaneous jammers that are used together or jammers that can jam, you know, one more than one channel at a time. So for future research, I'd want to test this kind of uh game theoretic solution that I proposed with networks of cognitive radios, as well as using some sort of deep learning. And I actually did that in my this year's project. So I can talk a little bit more about that later in this discussion if you want. Absolutely. And you've included deep learning. And about the application part, you will be testing on multi-link jammers, if I concluded well. Right, yeah. We've mentioned AI previously. And AI is kind of like a new boomer to the technology realm. Yeah. <laughs> and based on that, how do you envision the future of artificial intelligence? Because everyone has a take on it, and it can be polarizing at times. Where do you stand on this debate ground? I mean, I think I've already hinted at this in the previous answers, but you know, I think AI will be used to solve all kinds of different problems. So I think some of the biggest scientific problems today, such as the cure for cancer and you know, creating reliable autonomous vehicles, will all be solved through the use of some sort of AI. And even while using AI in my own research, I was able to appreciate you know, how powerful a tool it really is. And I think in the future, lots of researchers will take advantage of it. Definitely. And of course, it's a scientific podcast featuring bright young minds. We share your project work and present the person beyond that project board. But for those who might not be closely related to or invested in STEM, or they have not gotten deep down, or they've not gotten deep into this field, no pun intended with deep learning, but how would you defend AI? 
what would you say to those who share the viewpoints that AI is going to totally transform or alter our lives producing robots or humanoid creatures? So what would your response be to that? For sure. I mean, I think like much of the media nowadays and, you know, other kinds of films like Terminator and stuff like that, you know, those old types of films where technology was just starting to, you know, uh, take its stride on modern day society has kind of um, shrouded the public from a sort of uh, real view on what this technology is capable of. You know, I think that AI is very powerful in terms of solving research-based challenges. But I mean, as for, you know, the world being taken over by robots and stuff like that, I don't think there's really much of an issue or, you know, a problem worrying about that because, you know, we really aren't that in that kind of stage to make, you know, positronic brains, um, which Isaac Asimov, you know, made up or, you know, the Terminator or things like that. So I think AI can be used to solve research problems that we really need answers to nowadays, whereas uh, using it against the human society will probably not be very likely. Yeah, it's more connected to the sci-fi world, not to the real one per se. Yeah. I totally agree with you on what you've talked about because now with AI, we are discovering new genetic variations or mutations that can possibly lead to cancer. And you're able to detect them in a more efficient manner. Exactly, yeah. Before heading to ISEF 2020, I want to ask you which moments from your ISEF 2019 experience would you include in your mental highlight reel? Personally, the moment I stepped into that auditorium and started to walk through the category aisles, it felt like the same realization that got me into machine learning in the first place. Because, you know, when I started to browse the projects in cellular and molecular biology, embedded systems, plant sciences, physics, you know, all these other fields, I once again started to see machine learning used everywhere. And I was stunned that, uh, you know, in the same way I was in middle school, at how often it showed up. And now that I could actually understand, you know, the reinforcement learning and deep learning techniques that these researchers actually used, it really amazed me even more at how creatively other competitors were using these concepts to solve, you know, really incredible problems in their own fields. It's the same concept when you are studying math, for example, you are looking at integration or differentiation techniques and you're staring at the equation, not really understanding it, your mind blows like, what is this? But right. yes. when you truly understand the essence of it, you'll become your own expert. It's the same situation with ML that you get what you're talking about. And in terms of ISEF, how did you enjoy the events other than, you know, discovering the scientific projects and making global connections? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like ISEF, you know, every year I was actually an eighth grade observer before the the my first year as a competitor as a freshman in ISEF 2019. I was actually an observer. So I kind of gotten used to, uh, you know, like the opening ceremony and um, all these kinds of like the pin exchange and uh, all these kinds of exchanges and communications that you make with other scientists as well. You know, you get to talk about your research and stuff. So I was already, you know, kind of accustomed to that. But I think every year, regardless of how many times you've been there, it really blows your mind, right? At like, you know, the depth 
that these researchers have taken their projects to. And it's nice to see that, you know, other people from around the world have also enjoyed, you know, conducting this, the type of research that you're also conducting. And you get to have, you know, intelligent discussions that you probably won't have in the same area that you're living in, at least for me. Of course, you're able to connect with others on a different level in a way that the people who are not lovers of science or not interested in that field might not appreciate it to such extent. For sure, yeah. But I'm glad that you made long-lasting connections and you've had a blast at ISEF 2019. And you've applied to and got accepted to ISEF 2020, which sadly got cancelled due to COVID. There still was a virtual science fair experience, but I'm intrigued. Could you tell more about your ISEF 2020 project on mission critical communications? Right. So I actually qualified to ISEF 2020 as well. So it was really, you know, sad to uh, about this whole COVID thing canceling that. But yeah, I'd love to share the the new project that I've been developing. So the main reason I got so intrigued with machine learning in the first place was that it can be used to solve all kinds of different problems which were previously considered unsolvable. So in this year's project, I wanted to solve a problem that would have much larger implications than the previous project did by developing a model that researchers from other fields could actually follow. So essentially, I wanted to create a general methodology that could be used to approach planning under uncertainty problems in general. So I decided to start by first solving a planning under uncertainty problem in the context of communications field, because that's my background, of course. So I wanted to find an effective way to complete a mission of exchanging unique messages between two nodes against a jammer within a given time constraint. So my solution was a novel game theoretic model for mission critical communications and a deep queue network which implemented deep reinforcement learning techniques to learn a mission critical communications protocol which computed actions which were most desirable to the communications system in order to finish exchanging messages as fast as possible. Now I think that this type of methodology, since it was successful, can be used with other planning under uncertainty problems in other fields and I, they can use the same methodology that I use to solve their problems as well. Excellent. And you've also implemented game modeling in this MCC project as well. Right. Yes. Perfect. And essentially, you've wanted the radios to learn how to change channels in response to stimuli? Essentially, kind of. So basically, you know, I have two radios, right, that are communicating between each other. Now, each radio holds a unique message right, that it needs to convey to the other one. So there's a set of different channels that are between these two radios, and the radios need to somehow jump between channels and avoid the jammer in order to exchange fully their message, you know, their communication, the packets, between the two within a given time constraint. So I modeled that whole interaction using game theory, similar to what I did last year, where I modeled the interaction between the cognitive radio and the jammer using game theory. And I used machine learning to solve the problem. So this year I used deep learning techniques. Yeah. Using an artificial neural. And tapping into deep learning techniques, there is this new algorithm called deep policy hill climbing. Could you tell more about it? Of course. Yeah. So I actually developed this algorithm. Uh, it was completely new. And basically, you know, I optimized 
Another deep uh, Q learning algorithm, the basically the general deep Q network, deep reinforcement learning algorithm, by adding, um, I won't go too much into detail, but I added a variable learning rate. And I also, um, you know, made a different changes to the forgetting factor and other types of coefficients used in the algorithm that optimized this algorithm and made it converge faster. That was essentially the logic behind, uh, you know, this new algorithm. And, you know, when I tested it, it was actually proved to be a lot more effective than the original DeepQ network algorithm that I used. So it outperformed and went beyond the limits of what you've expected from the traditional one. I didn't expect the algorithm to work as well as it did. That's the beauty of science. And it just proves your point that deep learning can really take things to another level. We've scratched the surface of this topic, but what are some of the fields your framework could be applied in? I think that my proposed solution for developing a mathematically rigorous uh, game theoretic model and then using some sort of neural network to learn some sort of mission critical communications protocol uh, could be used to solve a wide variety of actually broad but globally prevalent problems today. So some of these are like resource management problems, such as food crop management, refugee crisis optimization, stock optimization, things like that. We can also use them in scientific missions. And this correlates to you know, what I was talking about earlier with re other researchers using my methodology. And I'm also thinking that we can probably use this type of thing with homeland security problems. Right now, the coronavirus is hitting hard you know, everywhere in the world. And disease control is a big, uh, globally prevalent problem today. Now, here in the U.S., we actually had a problem of, you know, how do we distribute testing kits throughout the United States um, to areas where we actually need them because our, our health staff is struggling right now. So I think this type of, you know, mathematically modeling that type of problem and solving and optimizing a solution using deep learning can be used to solve this type of problem as well if we further develop it. Very intriguing, especially the dispersion of kits to areas that are not in the center of metropolitan areas. Right, because you know, a lot of what's happening now is just manual. You know, uh, people are just thinking based off of their own judgment, you know, uh, here are the hotspots, we should probably send, you know, 5,000 here, 5,000 here, things like that. But with a rigorous mathematical model and computations, we can definitely optimize this type of testing kit distribution. Yes, because those are just approximations, not based on actual and factual data that could be solved by AI. Exactly. And how about Homeland Security? What do you refer to in that regards? Homeland Security, I think that also has to do with, you know, other types of problems such as disaster relief and refugee crisis. I think with the security aspect itself, you know, we can optimize these types of encrypted communications between satellites and things like that by also, um, you know, how do we jump between our limited frequency channels in order to avoid types of jammers quickly. That's sort of where I'm trying to go with that. Yeah, introducing game of jamming in that application as well. Yeah, because I think I think with security, it's a little bit more intuitive that we actually have some sort of adversary that's trying to you know disrupt that sort of security or compromise that somehow. 
So that's where the sort of jamming comes in. Absolutely. You got to have internal stability of your communication system so that you're not damaged by external forces. Right, exactly. We've talked about science and your discoveries, but we are moving into a field where you are actually the one who is giving science to others. You started tutoring low-income students in both math and English at the beginning of this year at ABQ Explora. Could you tell more about your volunteering experience? Of course. So I actually accredit my falling in love with science to having a strong academic background at a young age. So I believe that especially for young kids, if they get the opportunity to shine and start to succeed in school at an early stage in their education, they start to be more inclined to keep that trend going and keep accumulating knowledge. So by doing well in school from a young age, I believe it made me less resistant to being taught and completing schoolwork than some of my other peers. And if kids at a young age are discouraged towards striving high academically, it's much harder to be motivated in school later and can actually completely change the attitude of a kid towards academically rigorous scientific fields. So by tutoring low-income elementary and middle school students in math and English, I'm trying to build their confidence in the classroom, which I believe will have considerable influence later in life when they start to be exposed to formal scientific fields. And my particular state of New Mexico has one of the lowest education ratings in the U.S., actually. And, you know, I want to do what I can to actually help, you know, at least a few of these students reach their full potential because... When I meet them, you know, I can see that they're actually very brilliant people. They just haven't had the resources and things like that because of, you know, their specific areas and stuff to actually encompass and sort of fuel that brilliancy. What a noble mission you're on. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, because you instill hope in them. And who knows, they might grow to become future accomplished scientists or astronauts, you name it. And they will surely remember you, that you were the one who provided inspiration to them and saying that they can achieve more than was determined by the status quo. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much. And like, you know, I think that much of science today is a little bit, you know, biased towards all kinds of different, you know, types of races. You know, we were right now going towards, you know, including women in um, America and trying to get them more um, uh, involved in science as well. So I don't want, you know, this low income um, coming from a low income family or coming from, you know, my state in New Mexico to have, you know, an effect on their academic status later on. Yes, those initial moments are so crucial because their minds are really malleable, adapt to change, to new ways of thinking. Right. So it's definitely important to like influence them positively and give them a strong academic background at the beginning. Students come from difficult backgrounds and situations. What's your approach in teaching? Do you implement playful methods to alleviate that? It really depends on the age. You know, I, I work with a wide variety of students that come from, you know, elementary starting at like third grade to, you know, middle school, which go to around eighth grade. So, um, of course, their attention spans kind of vary. And, you know, I don't have a degree in education or things like that. I'm just here to, you know, give them more confidence by teaching them and filling in the gaps that their teachers probably wouldn't have about math and English. 
But, you know, of course I would use some sort of, uh, you know, playful approach towards younger students or, you know, types of breaks like snack breaks and things like that, just to keep them um, motivated. Because the last thing I want is for them to get discouraged, right? I'm trying to bring them into the type of high academic status that I want them to succeed in. So I don't, I don't want to drive that away, drive them away from that in some way. Definitely. And we have an if question coming on the pod. We've had hypothetically and theoretically many guests around our dinner table from noble mathematicians to Marie Curie. But now I'm interested to ask you if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who would you choose and why? Before I say, you know, my selection, I want to say that, you know, I'm very heavily involved with the math and physics fields specifically. So, you know, I'm interested in technology and things like that. But, you know, that type of technology is derived from this kind of um, basic fundamental principles of math and physics. So I actually would probably say Leonhard Euler, the mathematician, just because of, you know, how many important mathematical discoveries that he's made that has actually inspired lots of different modern day technology today. So, I mean, I'm sure that we'd have such an interesting competition between each other in hearing about, you know, this type of modern day technology that used, you know, um, the, the Gaussian function and all kinds of high level mathemat mathematical concepts in these types of new tech. And he's also my favorite mathematician. So that's definitely one of the reasons. That's definitely a plus. Right. <laughs> so you would introduce him and expose him to the newest technologies that are actually based on the mathematical laws he established? For sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, we'd have a great discussion on my research specifically as well, because, you know, um, I also make, you know, the, the math going into, you know, how do we create these types of deep learning algorithms, uh, things like that. How do we model a certain scenario using game theory that has a lot of mathematically rigorous concepts that I think he'd be a great insight to. So Yeah, who would be a better mentor than Euler himself? Just think about it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. At the end of each podcast, we have a game called the This or That Game. So basically, you got to choose either or. The first one is singing or dancing? Dancing or singing? Um, I'd probably say dancing. Breaking some moves on the dance floor? I don't really pride myself in my singing voice, so that's why I kind of chose dancing. Yeah, that's going to stay in the bathroom. The next one is sweet or spicy? Um, probably spicy. The next one is mountain or beach. I'm actually from Sri Lanka, so we're exposed to a lot of, uh, you know, types of beaches and things like that. And we always enjoy our beach time. So I'm going to say beach. Really? Well, not in the times of physical limitations we are living in, but do you travel back to Sri Lanka? Yeah, usually. I mean, not as much nowadays, of course, because of the coronavirus, but we usually go, um, you know, my family usually goes every two or three years just to visit the relatives and stuff like that. Sri Lanka truly has breathtaking beaches, so it's definitely applause that you have family roots there. <laughs> For sure. The next is horror or comedy? Um, probably comedy. Do you have a favorite TV show? For sure. So I actually uh, love The Big Bang Theory. It's, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's, uh, you know, about a group of physicists at Caltech 
um, just, you know, sharing their everyday lives. So I, I love it because it's, it's very, it has that kind of scientific background as well. And we sometimes get a glimpse of, you know, their research. Um, you know, one of the professors is actually working on string theory as part of his research, but it's also, you know, really funny to see the kind of life that, you know, professors from Caltech live. Believe it or not, but before our recording, I was actually watching The Big Bang Theory on Netflix. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> nice. Yeah, and the intelligent conversations they share are not only super funny, but they direct the attention of the wide audience to scientific discoveries, like you mentioned, string theory. Right, yeah, for sure. Next is football or basketball? Um, probably basketball, because I, I used to play basketball in middle school, so. <laughs> Do you still play basketball? It was mostly in middle school, yeah. So in high school, I didn't really get into it as much. I still enjoy playing it, you know, uh, like a leisure activity, but, you know, not competitively. Yes, of course, it's more academically focused. And the closing question on the pod is, what does science mean to you? I mean, I got into rigorous science because I viewed science as an opportunity for solutions. And I think humans um, developed science, regardless of how basic it was, they used it to um, solve problems and or make certain tasks more convenient. And that was you know, a historical trend. So I still think today, science is a way to make people's lives better by solving globally prevalent problems today. And I think that, you know, science is sort of an outlet for uh, people who can think and reason to have a very easy approach almost to solve problems that can impact a lot of people, if that makes sense. Sure, it's not only about facts and setting up new theories, but looking at the broader spectrum, moving out of the me zone, and focusing on how it affects others and implementing it in real life scenarios. Right. Yeah. And I think it also, you know, inherently encourages, you know, um, collaboration between lots of different people. So I think that just in that way, it's, uh, it's so much easier to, because it's, it's naturally developed for solving these kinds of problems that make the world a better place. And teamwork, working with others is so essential. I assume you had mentors and students by your side who are the same age as you, who are just as invested in the field as you are. I actually worked with a few graduate students first, and then I actually got a professor mentor. But that was all through, you know, the, the middle school science program that I did. So, I mean, that was definitely one of the greatest, like, things that happened to me, I think, because... That kind of mentorship and being able to learn about this type of field formally has definitely like piqued my interest with science as, as a whole. They gave you a great jumpstart to be more focused in that direction. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for expanding on your research, explaining the principles or the rules of game of jamming. And I hope that your device will be used on military grounds in the future. And I wish all the best with your future scientific endeavors. Right. You too. Hopefully we'll probably meet sometime at like the next ICEP or something. So yeah, it'd be great to, you know, come back and talk about the research and everything. 
I would hope that too, but I cannot be qualified to participate at ISEF now, but I was at ISEF 2019 last year. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think I saw you there, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were 1,800 students, so the mathematical probability is a bit off. Right, that's true. But again, thank you for coming. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button and follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. 